0: everyone, it is Glenn with the Northeast Georgia History Center and it is then again time. We're glad you're joining us and also joining us today is Dr. Philip Gertie from the University of North Georgia. Thanks for joining us, sir.
1: You're welcome. It's great to be here. Just to let your audience know, I'm an associate professor of history at the University of North Georgia and really my specialty within really the last couple of years, I got interested in researching this topic, which is the supernatural and occult in Victorian Britain, or what people believed and what meanings they took from those things in the late 19th century, early 20th century. But other than that, I also have looked at the history of India and Britain, and also the ma- history of material culture in 18th, 19th century England.
0: See, we museum people love material culture, because that's, <laughs> that's all we do. <laughs> exactly.
1: I love it too. It's, it's great. You know, when you can actually, like, there's a difference between like reading something on a page and actually being able to hold something, right? There's oh, an abs- emotional experience to holding things.
0: So. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and so your, your expertise is Victorian. And I think the one we all know about is A Christmas Carol. Right. And how that was, that seems quaint to us, but man, the Victorians took that sort of ghosty visitation, otherworldly experience really seriously, didn't they?
1: They did. And that's, it's funny you mentioned that because it kind of intersects with what we want to talk about today. But we always think of, I think, ghost period, the ghost time is Halloween right now. But no, during the Victorian period, ghost stories were, were a Christmas thing. And I think that's where Dickens sort really of gets his inspiration from, of course, when A Christmas Carol gets published, then, you know, ghost stories start to proliferate and really, I think, become that tradition. So um, it had existed before Dickens, but I think Dickens just helps to bring that on a much more popular level so you can just sort of see the Victorians sitting around their fires right it's cold outside it gets dark early telling their ghost stories
0: is christmas carol the first say pop culture ghost story for victorian england anyway
1: as far as I know, I mean, in my history studies, right, Sure. So if there was like somebody who does literary criticism, they'd want to correct me. But yeah, as far as I know, it has the sort of biggest impact in what I've what I've sort of looked at and researched and things like that. Now, you do have obviously sort of a more local level, these traditions of ghost story and ghost storytelling that go well beyond well before Dickens. But um, I think it's just, you know, again, with the, what I study, it's I think that sort of propels it maybe on a more a more popular level, a larger level.
0: Well, when you say supernatural, is that Mm -hmm. only ghost or or how does that exactly play out in, in this era?
1: Okay, so it's kind of become a blanket term. For when I describe what I study to people, because it's one that I think most people can kind of understand. So that would include the belief in ghosts, the belief in monsters, or and or things like fairies, right? So when I say monsters, I don't I don't necessarily mean growly, snarly things, Not right? But, um, <laughs> right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But fairies and things along those lines. But I also. That also means sort of ideas in the, in the occult and things like that. So um, the ability to, to do magic and the belief in things like astral projection and stuff like that. So it sort of becomes that blanket term for me that explains... All these ideas that were circulating out there. And maybe a way to look at it is they're just people who believed in them would believe them to be real, obviously, but beyond maybe maybe immediate human perception.
0: Right. So it's, and, you know, that's, that's something that's important, to, I, I think, to hit on is that would you say that during the Victorian period that pretty much everyone truly believed in ghosts and stuff?
1: That is a very interesting question, Glenn, because... <laughs> you're going to have, obviously, we always look at history through the lens of the historian, right? And right. if historians do anything, they disagree and they argue. <laughs> it's what we do best, right? So No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm of the belief, and I think more recent historians are of the belief that, yes, you had a very widespread belief in these things. But what that does, though, is it sort of is counter to the prevailing idea, the prevailing understanding up until recently about belief in the supernatural is that once you have science come in, you have the enlightenment come in, you have the scientific revolution, right? That sort of spreads out and somehow stamps out people's beliefs in these things. But if you look at periodicals and all kinds of other things, you still see people believing. And, and go. So if I I mean, obviously, I believe it to be wide, wide, more wider spread than um, than some other historians do. So to me, yeah, a lot of people believed in ghosts.
0: We already touched on how how pervasive it is in like literature mm-hmm. and things like that. But what about right. like day to day living, even getting into into politics and, and relations mm-hmm. between groups and things like that?
1: We can document like we know from diaries, we know from periodicals. And when I say periodicals, like newspapers, so you don't have to look far. So as a researcher, if you're going to go, for instance, into a database to British periodicals or newspapers and you put in the word ghost or specter or and there's lots of different phrases, right? Bogards, right? Um, Poltergeist. I mean, <laughs> right. on and on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, if you put those in, you will not have a problem finding stories about those that will that will pop up. And so it's quite everywhere
0: for sure. If it's everywhere. That means that there were contemporary experts on the issue.
1: Okay, so probably the biggest one would be um, the Society for Psychical Research, which gets created. They're almost like the first ghost hunters. So it's in the later, yeah, it's in the late 19th century, and this is almost has sort of contemporary. um, I mean, the society is still around today, but it has contemporary sort of associations because they were first established to, and they're all sort of people of, of science with science backgrounds. So their idea was that they could go in to places that people claim to be haunted. And this is just one thing. They sort of branch out into all kinds of other things like telekinesis and psychic ability, and they investigate all of these things. But their idea is that they're going to do it from a scientific point of view. So I find them fascinating because they sort of bridge that science supernatural gap because they believe, that they can use science to prove, for instance, the existence of ghosts. Not unlike, the, you know, I mean, they're, they're much more sort of clinical than like ghost hunters would be on TV today. But I think they're doing the same thing. Because if you look at a ghost hunting show today, they're going to carry with them little gauges, right? And I don't know right. if you've ever seen these things, right? They're trying to prove these things in a <laughs> somewhat scientific way. That's what that's what this early Victorian society was doing as well, that it wanted to, to prove or disprove. Right. And it thought it right. could do so through these methods.
0: Yeah. So I, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because mm-hmm. I could fall down this one. So, <laughs> so what were their what were their methods? Did they rely on reason? Did they have cool steampunk machines that, that detected ghosts? How, what, one what did, what did could they use? only hope
1: that they would have these like yeah, toolkits and things. <laughs> they did a lot of just interviewing witnesses, almost like interrogating witnesses, witness, not, not in a sort of harsh way but in a very methodical way. Also, they would go to these places themselves and they would stay there and they would document every little thing that happened and then try to find the reason it happened. So if somebody's hearing this loud banging in the middle of the night every night and they want to, the person saying the place is haunted, they would actually go in and try to understand the architecture, understand the piping, understand all that kind of stuff to come up with what the actual cause was of the weird noise.
0: So, so this group being the, being the biggest But there were probably, I'm sure, others. And coupled with the popularity of it, at some point, someone's going to start trying to make money off of this.
1: Right, right. And that's kind of where I'm researching right now is the whole thing, I think, gets commodified. And by thing, I mean the belief in all of these. So how is it commodified? Well, I mean, it's not hard to understand. So if you're a newspaper publisher... And you have to keep in mind that publishing becomes more inexpensive as technology allows presses to be built and sold. So all of a sudden you have lots of competition. So as a publisher, you're always trying to find content. I think that's going to sell and the supernatural is sensational. It, it, it People have an interest in it for a variety of different reasons that I think are real reasons. And so all of a sudden it, it, creates this industry these industries of publishing of material culture as well i mean one of my favorite pieces of material culture is called a Nell rose cup and it's published around well not published but it's created late 19th early 20th century by different pottery pottery manufacturers and basically what it is it's a fortune telling cup so if you drink tea you you boil your tea you pour it in the pot you put the tea in and then as you know right when you pour it into the cup some leaves will come through and end up at the bottom of the cup. And so this would have all kinds of symbols and things like that in the cup. So when you finished your tea, the tea leaves would fall on these symbols. And then the cup came with a booklet that would tell you, okay, this is what, this is what your fortune is. So it's that type of thing, right? That you have this whole industry. I mean, tarot cards come out of that as well. They become things which are really kind of esoteric things almost actually in the renaissance when they're first they're first created they're like a the game but by the late victorian period they're being manufactured and sold as a way of, of telling one's fortune and you can go buy a book that tells you how to how to use them and things along those lines across the board commodification
0: yeah. so with commodification comes democratization too
1: yes right that's a great point fantastic point because to some practitioners which are more you this for lack of a better term, elite. That's that's terrible because <laughs> then right then anybody can get their Cup or they can get right. their tarot cards, and some people see that as a as a as a terrible thing. That kind of takes away from the legitimacy of the practices. But I tend to think it allows people to associate with these things in a, in a greater way. So it does. It's like a, yeah, bringing anybody can have access to these things because of the commodification, and I think that's an important point too because. It shows I think we tend to think of commodification as a negative thing, but commodification could be a positive thing because it does allow people greater access to all of these different ideas, these beliefs, um, all of these things. I mean, similar to it, you have this wide scale production and selling of things that, that, that Christians would use, like crosses and stuff like that and artwork and all kinds of things along those lines. So commodification is a good thing. Right, in that sense,
0: that brings up another great question. So the Victorians are very religious people; they are, and yet they're also fascinated with the idea of spirituality. Tell us a little bit about how how do they make those mesh? Because you know, today a lot of a lot of folks sort of see them at odds. But did the Victorians, or was it all part of one big world? I mean,
1: some would, and some wouldn't, right? Um, So certainly, you would have those who who would see these beliefs as as sort of um, dangerous? But you know, over the period of time, though, it becomes less of a religious issue and I think more of sort of a scientific-minded issue. That if you believe in these things, then you, you're not you're not really using reason in, in science and logic. You're you're given to emotion in that sense. But with that said, I find it interesting that a lot of the groups that I start to study um, will incorporate Christianity into their ideas. So it's almost like a global, and it's not surprising given what's happening in in Britain with the growth of the empire, it's taking all of these ideas and kind of come, trying to come put them into one belief system. So you incorporate the ideas alongside Buddhism and Hinduism into some new system. So it's almost like a a hybrid um, thing that happens.
0: This is a topic of many rabbit holes which is which <laughs> I think I think speaks to to how fascinated it is so you you, right. you finally mentioned the British Empire and the and the overseas right. holdings. How did Vic- British spiritualism deal with other cultures? For lack of, I'm going to simplify it and just say spiritualism. I know it's more complex, than
1: that. <laughs> right? But yeah, for purposes of communicating, <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. Um, <laughs> for a 20 minute podcast, let's just say it's all spiritualism. <laughs> right.
1: Exactly, exactly. Thus, that, why I call it supernatural. Right. supernatural because it's yeah, it makes it easy to talk about. Well, when you look at something like one of the biggest groups that emerge, the theosophists. I mean, the theosophists are directly influenced by India. So you have ideas that come out of Hinduism, and then get incorporated and drive theosophy. And then it comes back into England. And you have a theosophical society, you have publications of that society, you have really prominent people who are joining that group or believing what that group believes. So it's it's a really interesting case of not in the old days, what they used to call sort of the metropole influencing outward, but the empire, the colonies out there or the possessions out there influencing back into England and causing and causing beliefs to change. Yeah, so it, it, it goes both ways. But certainly the way I see it is it's a sort of movement toward among certain groups of this sort of movement toward globality. That that those ideas, because they're from somewhere else, don't don't sort of make them bad. Actually, I think a theosophist would say it makes them even more it makes it more legitimate
0: because it it's it's more encompassing, more more correct, yeah, more
1: correct and
0: older. That's a thing too that a lot
1: of groups kind of hold on to is that these ideas are ancient, so they must they must have some sort of legitimacy significance
0: to them. As, as the Victorian Empire grows and the Victorian era continues and, and some would say wane, what happens to this belief in the supernatural and, and how does it continue to be commodified and democratized if it does?
1: The period I study goes until sort of the end of World War I. And because of the devastation of, of World War I, you have, again, booming industry for spiritualism in general. You also have things like the selling of uh, good luck charms, right, That, that soldiers would carry with them. Meaning if you had it, you would have somehow, right, there would be this force that gives you better luck. But, you know, after the 1920s, supposedly, and again, it's after my period, but supposedly you have sort of a a waning of this—that you still have these beliefs around—I think they continue, but it's not as much of an industry. You almost have this sort of waves; these industry come in waves over time, so they'll 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 sort of wax and wane for whatever reason. I mean, we can see this in in our own history here in the United States, right? When I was growing up, there's lots of and would be—I was a little kid in the 1970s, right? But starting in the 60s, you you begin to have this sort of popular fascination with things like Bigfoot, with things like, I mean, you can see it throughout, right? I don't know yeah. how old you are, but I mean, the $6 million man even
0: had Bigfoot on it, right?
1: So yeah. No, like, I, I remember that right?
0: episode. I really do.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It becomes this phenomenon, but it's one of many. I know that like Ouija boards, right. Are also sort of popular in the 1970s for sure. And yeah, right. they sort of, but then it begins to wane. So just these, these sort of periods of increased interest, and, you know, the historian, I mean, just sort of says that that's tied to maybe tensions that people are feeling and they be sort of outlets for those tensions, right. um, cultural tensions, right, or things along those lines.
0: Well, and, you know, not to, not to drive our audience to other museums, <laughs> but have you been to the Bigfoot <laughs> Museum that's uh, I all have the way
1: Ridge? I have heard of it. Yes, I have not gone yet. <laughs> it's
0: every time I drive by there going home, uh, the parking lot's covered up. It's covered up. People keep, <laughs> yes. and, and I see yes. the little, I believe, stickers on their cars that they get from there. Yes. It's, it's a yeah. big thing.
1: And that's what I want to do in my research is sort of dissect the particular reasons why. Right. Um, and I think you can sort of look at the process of commodification and you can look at what these various things offer in their representation. And there's things there that people connect with. Again, whether it's history, these things are, are ancient or globality, like right. in the case of Victorians that. Theosophy is offering them associations beyond just their, their local mundane life, something larger, something bigger, something more exciting. Yeah, I mean there's lots of things I think, right? Right. That can, can be discovered.
0: And I think reinterpreted too, you know, you mm-hmm. t- exactly. tell me, tell me if I'm going too far, but it seems like by far the most popular, let's say readoption of the supernatural and spiritualism at least in our time is Harry Potter in that whole yes. world right
1: yeah i think you almost have the the boom that happens happens probably or what i sort of call a recent boom which i would say i i think probably mid-2000s right but i think um the harry potter movies are right there on that timeline sort of causing an interest in this they're they're interesting they're yeah <laughs> they're the movies are fun to watch but if you start looking at when, for instance, and I say this sort of boom, when you look at when these ghost hunting shows start to show, it's a what, right? It's about two thousand four, yeah. two thousand five, and then they're followed by sort of the monster shows that are that are on. So we've been right. riding this sort of this sort of wave now for a little while. I wonder if that if it will then start to wane.
0: Maybe that if uh, attendance to the. Bigfoot Museum would tend to say we're <laughs> not to the waning period yet. But exactly. Exactly.
1: <laughs> but th- I mean, that's another sort of argument that historians have made is that these things do continue. They they always continue. That you don't have you really don't have that divide between scientific modern and traditional supernatural, that they're always they're always combined. And they almost help define the two things help define each other. So it's sort of like if you're going to define yourself as modern and scientific. You can't define it unless you have some sort of dichotomy, right? <laughs> I mean, no, you're,
0: you're you're absolutely right. And right. you know, even though we live in this amazing modern technological age, there's something within us that still craves having something in our lives that we don't quite understand. That isn't, right. I mean, again, you know, not the Harry, that popularity of Harry Potter movies and and all right. these things. And how many books are sold about ghost hauntings and and things like right. that? We we right. we just as a people, not even a people, as a as humans, we need this stuff. We crave right. this stuff.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I remember having a conversation with um, my, one of my students in class. I teach a, a, a class on this. The student was just saying, well, what would it be if we didn't have this? Life would be sort of, it right, would be kind of very boring yeah. without <laughs> these kind of you know, this hint of almost something else that's exciting, yeah, yes, yeah. Indifferent and different sp- and spooky.
0: Yes, there are more things in heaven and hell, Horatio, that are dripped of in your <laughs> philosophy.
1: There you go, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, one, I want to we're about to have to wrap up, but I want to okay. create a teaser because I want to do another episode with you. We've talked about this, so you've been that'd be awesome. You've been studying actual monsters in Georgia, right?
1: I have, thanks to uh. Christine Stillwell at the uh, at the library here. She's been helping me because my goal is to, because I, I studied Britain. I thought it'd be really neat to look at where I live <laughs> <right>? <laughs> if there were a history of this in, in Georgia. So yes, I'm, 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 I'm doing that. And I've found some really kind of interesting stuff, right? From this Loch Ness-esque monster <laughs> to, um, ogres and wogs and, and all kinds of, of neat things. As my research continues, yes, we should definitely sit down and I'll, I'll update you on on what I'm finding.
0: Okay, we, yes, that would be great. So we'll go ahead and we'll make a, a schedule to get you back on to talk about <laughs> all these otherworldly creatures that live right next to us. Right. Here exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, thank you. Dr. Gertia. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's a fascinating topic. And like I said, we could probably spend hours going down all these different rabbit holes, but this is a good summation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Glenn. I, I had a total blast. It's really, I am the luckiest man alive when this is my job, right? <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about things like this. So thank you very much.
0: Thank Absolutely. You. Thanks for being with us. This has been Then Again with Glenn at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Um, And until next time, y'all stay safe and take care.
2: Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. We also hope you'll join us for our free weekly live stream programs on Facebook Live and YouTube Live every week at 2 p.m. Eastern. Just search for the Northeast Georgia History Center and we'll pop right up. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Our next members live stream is a virtual tour of the 18th century White Path Cabin here at the History Center. Digital memberships are as low as $3 a month or $35 a year. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Again, at www.negahc.org. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.